Our text is in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word that was given so long ago and yet still speaks to us today. We ask you now, Lord, to have your Holy Spirit enter into this place, enter into our hearts to convict us of sin and to draw us close to yourself. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today is kind of show and tell. I brought a couple books up that I'm going to refer to. I'll start with this one. Uh, probably about two years ago, I was uh, given an assignment by my boss at work to read this. I don't expect you to see the title. It's called, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's not a Christian book, of course. It was assigned to me by my boss at UP. It's written by a man named Marshall Goldsmith, who actually is quite a well-renowned business motivational speaker. In, in a sense, he's a coach for executives that are extremely successful but want to be more so. Uh, the subtitle here is How Successful People Become Even More Successful. Discover the 20 workplace habits you need to break. And it's actually quite interesting. I want to read a, a comment that he makes. He says this, These four success beliefs that we have the skills, the confidence, the motivation, and the will to succeed make us superstitious. And he said, oh, no, you'll say, no way, that's not me. But then he goes on to say, superstition is merely the confusion of correlation and causality. And then he goes on to say this, almost everyone I meet is successful because of doing a lot of things right. And almost everyone I meet is successful in spite of some behavior that defies common sense. One of the greatest mistakes of successful people is the assumption, I behave this way and I achieve results. Therefore, I must be achieving results because I behave this way. So see, these people that he uh, coaches are reluctant to change. They're successful. I'm successful because of what I'm doing. I don't know what the baking recipe is, but I don't want to change it. So I'm going to do it the exact same way. But then typically, they're encouraged by people that they work with to go seek a coach because they need help, because they alienate people. They don't do their jobs nearly as well as they think they do. They could be much better. The reason I'm quoting it is it's actually quite a lot like the first uh, sentence in our, in our verse. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. So see, this, uh, these people that Jeremiah is speaking of are glorying or boasting in wisdom, might, and riches. And then this is what this man goes on to say. Now remember, he's trying to change them. He says, people will do something, including changing their behavior, only if it can be demonstrated that doing so is in their own best interests as defined by their own values. In other words, what's in it for me? If you want to change me, you have to convince me that it's in my best interest. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. What's in it for me is a basic premise of free market economics. It's a shorthand for free market economics. And so we all really embrace the what's in it for me attitude. And God expects that. He doesn't expect us to plod through life with this, this grudging, uh, giving everything away it must be from the heart. It must be something that you want to do. What's in it for you in that sense, then, is even when you're giving away, there is blessing in it for you. What's in it for me is a good statement. He goes on to say this. Now, remember, this is a secular book. It's spoken to a lot of successful people, and this is what he says. 
Fortunately, successful people make it easy to find the button of self-interest. If you press people to identify the motives behind their self-interest, it usually boils down to four items. Money, power, status, and popularity. See, until this point, we could agree with a lot of what he said, but then he says this. But see, this is truth. This is what motivates people. It even motivates us in many ways. And so let's not be so quick to poo-poo what this man is saying. Money, power, status, popularity. And yet, what did Jeremiah say? Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. The reason this book popped into my head was because Jeremiah wrote about it to the Jews long, long, long ago. So, these things, money, power, popularity, they are what people want, they are what people value, they are what people boast about. It fills our world, and we know this. So now, I, want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, when you research sermons done on this text, uh, this is spoken to, and I think it's important. But I believe there are four reasons why it's important that Christians, especially, would view boasting about these things as irrational. Even non-Christians would, I think, find some of this irrational if they really were to examine it. So now first, the first reason why boasting in these things is irrational is that they are merely temporal. And Solomon addressed this really well in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all of them. Concerning wisdom, in Ecclesiastes 2.16, he said this, There is no more remembrance of the wise man than of the fool forever. He spoke this of himself because he was involved in a study. He was a scientist, but he was involved in a study of just how far his own power, wealth, wisdom would take him. And it left him embittered, embittered about life. His wisdom was the thing that I think most upset him, that his wisdom would not really carry on into future generations. Strength. In Proverbs 20, we read, The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head. I like this because in one verse, it does chronicle the transition that most men endure in going from young and strong, vibrant and healthy, powerful, capable, to not so much. You want to learn how to uh, encourage other younger guys to do all those things that you used to be able to do 20, 30, 40 years ago. So see, that's strength and wisdom and maturity, the gray hairs. At, at UP, we always call everybody gray heads. We're so politically incorrect. The old gray heads are retiring. Proverbs 23, 5, wealth. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. Wealth is fleeting. And even wise people who are wealthy aren't always remaining wealthy. They make mistakes. And really one that isn't mentioned, but especially concerning wealthy, it, it is appropriate to mention it. And that is Ecclesiastes 5:12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Rich people worry a lot. Powerful people worry a lot. They have this influence, they have this wealth, and they want to keep it. And so they fret over that. Now, that's the first reason, that these are merely temporal, and anybody could lose any of this at any moment. You could lose your wisdom. You could lose your wealth. You could lose your strength. The second reason, they are not due to our own efforts or abilities alone. For instance, uh, women show off their beauty. They, they demonstrate their beauty. Men show off their strength, their power, their skills. Uh, parents, we parents brag often about our children, their accomplishments and everything. But this is what Paul told the Corinthians concerning this. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so, 
involved in a lot of what we have pride in is no, nothing to do with us, with who we are, with what we've done. We might be proud, proud of the shape of our feet, the length of our toes. We could be proud about so much. And especially we parents, oh, we can just talk endlessly about our kids, bore people to tears. I have a woman at work that I try to avoid for that reason. I mean, that is what, one of the major complaints about workplace environment is people talking about their children to ad nauseum. People don't want to hear other people talking about their kids. Now, I might want to talk about my kids, though. Oh, yeah, they're special. <laughs> you, you, you're going to have to endure that if I've got the floor. But boy, turnabout is not fair play when it comes to that. We just grow tired of it. So that's the second one. What we brag about is often that we have nothing to do with. And yet, the third point, even that which we do have a significant role in, is ultimately due to God. And again in Corinthians, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians, in 15, he says, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet, not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul worked very hard, and he was not, uh, to, he was not so self-deprecating to not tell people, I'm working hard. But yet he would give all the glory to God. He would boast in God that it is God who has made him possible to do these things. I remember years ago, and I think, I think it's a movie starring Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek, but they're these struggling farmers. And I remember one scene where they're sitting down to a meal, and I think the wife, Sissy Spacek, is encouraging Mel Gibson to give thanks for the food. He's like, why should I give thanks for this food? Jesus didn't get up early with me and go out into the field. He wasn't out there sweating with me in the field. I put this food on the table. Me. You should be thanking me. I was like, whoa, this is, I mean, you know, hey, this is a consistent atheist. I did it all. I did. You know, giving no thought whatsoever to God's involvement in everything that fills our world. That that rain fell, that that sun comes up, that stuff even grows out of the, this earth that we have. So see, now that's three of the reasons. And the fourth one, I think, is the most important. And that is that boasting in these things blinds us to what we should boast in. As long as we're boasting in this, we're not aware of what we should be boasting in. And that takes us to the next verse. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Now, we're going to be on this for a bit. What does it mean to understand and know God? That's why I brought this other book. This is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. This is uh, probably not an original copy. Um, well, it was 1973. I bought it in 1979, but it actually was like the, I don't know, 93rd printing or something. I don't know. This was a very popular book. But uh, when I bought this book, I still remember the day I bought this book. I had a friend in Oceanside, California, who was actually in the military, but was off getting his education, and he was uh, in working at this Bible bookstore, and I was there on a Saturday. I bought this book, and I went home to my barracks room, and I wrote this in the flyleaf. March 6th, 1983, three days from now, 30 years ago. Dear Father, today I met a person who is a Christian, but there was little there to prove that point to me. Please have me to think often of this person as I live my life. And let me see myself through the eyes of those I speak to. For I fear that I too show little proof of the fact that I am one of your children. Thank you, Father, a son. Um, until, until I'd read this book, I had no idea that words could be put together that could so move me. Not outside of the Bible. And of course, you know, those are God's words. And so you give them special uh, credibility, additional uh, import, because you think, okay, it's the you know, Holy Spirit that has written this. It's the Holy Spirit that's affecting me. But as I read the, this book, it just, I was awed over and over again by some of what was written. And I want to give you a couple quotes. Uh, the, the very first uh, few lines of chapter 1 
he actually quotes extensively from a sermon, and this is just one brief quote of that. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. These these words were written and spoken by a 20-year-old pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon. But Packer understands people, and a few pages later he went on to write this, We need to ask ourselves, what is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? And these are things of God, studying theology. What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I've got it? For the fact that we have to face is this, that if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us, and we shall come to think of ourselves as a cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and our grasp of it. Uh, I hadn't intended to mention this, but I won't give names, but a few weeks ago when Phil and I had gone down to Wichita, I met a man that this speaks to, a very proud, young, arrogant man. And it was all I could do to just not slap him with some of the rude things that he was saying. But I thought, I'm just here to say my piece and I'll go back. But I believe that pastor has an issue to deal with in that man. Hopefully he will. But throughout my life, I've played whack-a-mole with my pride. And I'm horrible at whack-a-mole with my pride. Those moles, half the time, I think, are just up taunting me. And I don't even know they're there because I'm so oblivious to my pride. To glory is to boast. This text says, but let him who glories glory in this. So to glory is to boast. What are we to boast in? But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Does the text say that he understands and knows about me or of me or understands and knows my word? It doesn't say that. What the text says, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So see, that's different. That is something that we've got to talk about. What happens if we don't understand something? I mean, just as a human, what happens if you don't understand something? Well, you're disappointed, you become frustrated, you can become angry. My hearing is going. And I frustrate my wife. She wants to smack me sometimes. I try to tell her, if you're going to talk to me, look at me, please. I'll hear you then. I'll understand you. But half the time, she's looking away. And so I blame her. <laughs> right? Isn't that what we do? I've given you the, the way you can communicate with me. But so, see, I'm frustrating now not only my wife. I'm frustrating my children. I'm frustrating my coworkers. And so I've got to deal with this. I'm so cheap, I don't want to deal with it, but I'm going to have to deal with it. It's certainly not my vanity, is it? No, not at all. <laughs> now, we are disappointed. We, we can't understand something. We're disappointed. We get frustrated. Uh, 30 years ago, 30, uh, 33 years ago, I was down at Millington Naval Air Station. And now, this I don't know if it, they're still trained this way, but a lot of my classes were just self-paced. The computer would essentially spit out what I was supposed to do. And so all I interacted with was a computer. I'd go to my class at 6 in the morning, and I'd sit at my little carol, my study carol, and I'd just basically interact with the computer. I'd take these computer cards, and I'd go over and pump them in the computer, and I'd come back, and I'd study for a bit. I'd go back. I'd take a test. Well, one day, a fellow wasn't doing well, and he started beating that printer to death. These are big. I mean, this wasn't like your little printer. I mean, this is a big monolithic thing, but he's a huge guy. And he's picking that printer up, and he's tossing it down. He's picking that printer up. He's tossing it down. He was frustrated with his lack of understanding. And I have to hand it to the instructor. The instructor, you know, that's kind of monitoring our room, he just 
waits for him to get it out of his system two or three times, and then he just goes over there and says, come on, son, you know. So he escorts him out. I'm sure he went off to fuel jet planes somewhere. <laughs> but see, it frustrates us not understanding something. Genesis 11:7. God did this to all of us intentionally. Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. See, now here it's reversed. The confusion comes first, and then the lack of understanding. Usually we have it the other way around. The lack of understanding leads to confusion, but God reversed it in this miraculous way this day. He just stopped them all from being able to communicate. I'm sure they got frustrated with one another. They were blaming one another, but then they all just went their separate ways. They found people they could communicate with. So now, my question to you is, to what degree does disappointment, frustration, perhaps even leading to anger, characterize your life? Do you suffer from this day to day, week to week? I believe there are chronic sufferers of this. What does that mean then? If someone is suffering from this day in, day out, week in, week out, what does that tell us? whether it's about ourselves or about someone that we know. It means we do not understand something or we're choosing not to. We could understand, but we don't want to. And so we're digging in our heels and we're fighting something. And so when we don't understand a person, what do you do? What do I do? I watch them. I watch their lips if I can. I listen very attentively. I crank up the volume on my phone at work. I have to do these things in order to now hear people as I used to just do it effortlessly 10, 20 years ago. So you have to work hard, don't you? To listen to people, to truly understand people, you have to pay attention. And we don't always do that. To understand a topic, you have to study. You have to study hard, diligently. It's not enough to just read it. You've got to study it. You've got to test yourself on it. We just learned this morning, I learned from Gary, that those 20 lectures that Phil had produced for Russia, he has to make up a, an exam for all 20 of them. He hadn't known that. And so now we know our Pastor Kaiser. He's probably over there in every spare minute putting together those exams. He's going to do what it is that they're asking him to do. But see... We want to understand God. That's what this is about. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So see, God has given us several things here. He's given us his word, which we can study at our leisure. He's given us his spirit, who he's promised will guide us. So see, we have both a subject, and that is the Bible, and a person, that is the Holy Spirit, that we can listen attentively to study, examine, communicate with. So see, we have advantages here. But understanding isn't just something that comes to you. You've got to work at it. You could memorize the entire Bible and yet have it be meaningless to you because you're not integrating it into your worldview. You're not seeking to obey it. And God then stops, prevents your understanding of it. So now, study gains us some understanding of God. But what about knowing? But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So understanding and knowing are two different things. Uh, the start of chapter 2 in this book says this. He uses this story. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God, and they haven't. Now, what's interesting is this book was so profound in my life that I can still remember what I thought when I read those words. And what I thought really reflects my character at that time of my life. I thought, this man is bitter. I read bitterness into what this man was saying. I have known God and they haven't. I read self-righteousness. I read this attempt to vindicate himself. But now, looking back on it, 
I can see so clearly that none of that was present in this, what this man was saying. What he was saying was said with sadness and with thankfulness. What was he sad about? What was he thankful about? Well, for one, he spoke it with no bitterness. He was not bitter against those people that had run him out of his position. He was sad for their sake. He pitied them. What what was he thankful about? He was thankful that he knew God. What allowed him to not be bitter, what allowed him to bear their injustice against him was this knowledge of God, this knowing God. It's not a knowledge of God. It's a knowing God, being on intimate terms with God. Let me back up to cover that phrase again. I I mentioned it in passing, let him who glories glory in this. And I mentioned that to glory is to boast. We are encouraged to glory. Glorying or boasting is not bad here. God himself is encouraging us to glory, to boast. Uh, One of the articles that I read online as I was preparing for this was entitled Exaltation of Heart and Life by a man named D. Young. I don't know who this man was, but I think he was from the 1800s. We are to have much grief and pity, continual sorrow of heart, because of the world's sins. But it argues a great lack and a great loss if we have not much joy because of God's salvation. So see, a Christian, a fulfilled, God-honoring Christian, always has this bitterness for what is happening to other people, this sadness for what is happening in the world, this sin, this evil. The, 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 even that Christians aren't embracing God as they're embracing God. Yet there is this incredible joy that this fulfilled Christian has in knowing that they know God, that God knows them, that they're in step with God. So see, that's what life is all about. That's what a Christian... That's what a Christian's daily life should be like. It is one of constant sadness and constant joy, both, but for obviously very different reasons. So now, what does it mean to glory in that we know God? What does this man mean in our story when he said, I've known God? and they haven't. What exactly does he mean? Did he imply that the, man, the men who ran him out of his position were not saved? Did he intend to say that? In other words, is it only Christians that know God and non-Christians that do not know God? But, If all Christians know God, do they all know them equally well? I'm supposed to be preaching a sermon, but I'm asking you lots of questions. Questions help you think. They help you engage your mind. And so you must think about this. What exactly did this man mean? I've known God, and they haven't. I want to talk about the two words that we've introduced in this sentence, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Two similarities in these two words, understands and knows. First, only believers can truly know and understand God. We know this scripture is fairly clear on it. Second point, but believers understand and know God to differing degrees. And there's one big difference, I believe, between the two words here, to understand and to know. Now, God hides much from us in his word. He tells us that in his word. He shields us from knowing things. So, in other words, our understanding of his word, of him himself, is limited. 
It's limited by God Himself. Every one of us has a governor that God has put in place that prevents us from understanding things. Why would God do that? Because He doesn't just dole this out to everybody in equal amounts, does He? He doesn't cast all of His riches into people that do not appreciate it. So if you appreciate what God gives you, you want more than He gives you more. But you have to demonstrate that you have a hunger for what God is willing to give you. He's not going to give it to you if you don't want it. We have four cats in our house, and there's one cat that is always hungry. Meow, meow, meow. I don't know if you've seen that Simon uh, thing on YouTube. It's so hilarious. He's got this one cat, meow, and then he points at his meow, and then he points at his mouth. That's what our cat does. Now, the other three, they're, you know, they'll avail themselves of the food, but this one, I mean, he's a predator for humans because he knows you control that plastic bin that he can't get into. So he's always seeking you out. If there's no food in the bowls, even if he's not that hungry, he's tracking you down. Ah, okay, here. Then he walks away. I've done my job. The food's in the bowl. We're set for later. You know? It's just just remarkable. He is so insistent. These other cats, I think, would be much skinnier if that cat wasn't always badgering us. So see, that's what God wants us to be like relative to him, right? He wants us to be after him all the time. He wants us to then put it to use, but that is our God. So the difference, though, between these two words, understand and know, to know God requires so much more of God's active participation in allowing us to know Him. So see, anybody can read God's Word and come to some loose understanding, some basic understanding. God has revealed that to us. It's the deeper understanding that He prevents. And with unbelievers, they don't ever get to that saving level of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They just don't. It is spiritually discerned. They have no spirits. It's dead. They must be revived. But let me quote Packer as he describes what it means to know God. It is clear that knowing God is of necessity a more complex business than knowing a fellow man, just as knowing my fellow man is more complex than knowing a horse. Unlike horses, people cover up and do not show everybody all that is in their hearts. Thus, the quality and extent of our knowledge of them depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. You see the difference. To know God means that He has allowed you to know Him. It's all God's prerogative to withhold himself from you. So what does he want you to do? He wants you to seek him. And here is where I got permission from Tabitha to tell you a story. Uh, Some of you have heard this. I don't know if you've all heard it. I don't know if I've ever told it from the pulpit. But when I... I I tell people when people ask how Tabitha and I got together, uh, I say she was assigned to me. And... uh, We worked together, and the very first day, I believe, of her employment at Hughes, I had a meeting with IT. I was in a different department. And so uh, the IT manager brought two women with him, very young women. One was a student programmer, uh, my wife, and she would be there to do data entry. Another was a programmer. She came along just in case what we wanted was actually development of a computer program. So sadly, she has no recollection of me at that meeting. Because I was there with my boss, who was this old Navy guy that had tattoos all over his body, and she was just mesmerized by his tattoos. So, see, it wasn't my fault that she didn't remember me from that meeting. She was assigned to me, and she did excellent work 
incredible work. She was so much better than anybody else I'd ever had. I couldn't keep her busy. So she would come to me. I would give her stuff, and she would come back two hours later, done. I'm like, no, this isn't how it works. You have to come see me tomorrow or the next day even. Then I'll have more work for you. She was so competent. But uh, anyway, I was struck by her. She was very beautiful. She was very exotic. And yet I couldn't get to know her because she's just so quiet. And I went to her cube, and she wasn't there. She was in the, the data room right across the hall. And I'm standing in her cube, and it's just spotless. There's like nothing. You couldn't even tell anybody lived there. There was only one thing that was in that cube that spoke to her being there. And it was a picture, maybe about an 8 by 10 or even bigger, uh, that sat up on the top of her uh, carol, like a shelf there. And it was a picture of what I thought was in the uh, southwestern desert because it had like a very rugged, dry terrain, a big gorge, and there was cliff dwellings built into the side of the mountain. And I was like, I've got an inn. I've got, a, I've got a, something to talk about with her. So I asked her about it. I said, is this in the American Southwest? You know, it looks like Indian dwellings. And she said, no, this is from the Gobi Desert. This is in China. So boy, I was in. Started asking her about China. She had gone to China the year before. She had traveled China for two months. She had been in Taiwan for six months. So finally, we began talking. And she began opening up to me. She was allowing me to get to know her. And so until that point, though, all I had was work, and work is boring. You can't get to know somebody just by talking about whether this should be that word or that word. You know, it's pretty boring. But she revealed herself to me. She allowed me to get to know her. After this portion of the text in this book, Packer goes on to talk about what would you do if you were given the opportunity to go meet with someone whom you greatly admire? This is a person that you really, really admire. Would you go there and run your mouth off? Not really. You would go there in the hopes that they would open themselves up to you. You're not there to impress them. You're there to be impressed by them. You're there to learn. You're there to enjoy their presence. So another thing about this is what if they were in your chain of command, you know, military, civilian, government, whatever, but what if they could assign you things? You'd be listening attentively. What is it that they want me to do? you would be ready to act on what it is that they ask you to do. But are we like that with God, really? To truly know God, we must listen closely to God. What is He telling us? What does He want us to do? What is He steering us away from? And are we ready to obey God without delay? Because if we do delay, that's disobedience. Elijah fled from Jezebel, and he was hiding in a cave. And this is from uh, 1 Kings 19. I want to read a portion of it. But he had had that wonderful, impressive interchange with the prophets of Baal, God's power burning up all the prophets of Baal, being astounded by what has happened. All of Elijah's helpers there essentially rounding up the prophets of Baal and seizing them and killing them. And then when Jezebel, not intimidated by what had happened at all, couldn't care less about the power of Jehovah, tells him, you will surely die, he flees, he runs away. And so here he is hiding in a cave, an angel of the Lord comes to him, ministers to him, gives him uh, food and, and uh, strength. And so now we have this in verses 11 and 12. And the word of God came to Elijah, and he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so then Elijah listens and he obeys. 
God does not come to us as we expect. He does not come to us how we expect. He does not come to us when we expect. He defines all those terms. He defines the relationship with us. The question is, do we submit to it? Or do we fight against it and get frustrated? Jeremiah 29, 13, 20 chapters on from the text that we're looking at, says this. And he's written this in a letter to those that have been deported from Israel. And he says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's familiar, isn't it? I just mentioned that a couple weeks ago. The original of that is in Deuteronomy 4.29, where Moses prophesies of a future time when the Jewish nation would be taken captive and taken away from Jerusalem. And he says, you will then find God if you search for him with all your heart. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is telling the exiles to do. This is the time Moses foretold. 700 years later, Jeremiah Jeremiah writes these words to those people to say, obey him now. Your forefathers have not, you have not, but it's time to obey him. We'll go on to the next verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, verse 24. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Now, loving kindness is an odd word, and yet it is alternatively uh, translated steadfast love, unfailing love. And actually, when it says, for in these I delight, says the Lord, which is the next uh, phrase, uh, delight is a very rare word in Scripture. It's only used 19 times. And another example of the use of the word delight comes in Micah 7.18, where God says this, God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And so, when we read loving kindness, we can read steadfast love, unfailing love, long-suffering, mercy. All of those are implied by this. And when you take these words, you see that it refers to righteousness last, loving kindness first, judgment in the middle. But if you move righteousness to the middle, just as this example, you have righteousness, God exercises righteousness, He exercises mercy. He exercises justice. You see, righteousness, God being righteous, is in the middle. And you have justice and mercy that are balanced by this. As a matter of fact, you might be familiar with the phrase, justice and mercy kissed. And in Psalm 8510, that's where that comes from. And uh, I was actually trying to puzzle it through, but I couldn't figure exactly how we get to justice and mercy kissed. But uh, again, Charles Spurgeon quoted it directly, but after he had given the full verse. And so there must be some way that you can, through literary means, understand what uh, the writer of Psalms meant here. But in Psalm 85.10, we read, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. And commentators say this is looking ahead to the time when Christ's sacrifice would be what makes this possible. It essentially allows God to be righteous while exercising mercy upon people that are oppressing and sinning vilely against others while being just. So see, it's God is righteous, God is just, God is merciful. You have to wonder, how can all of that be done in this world simultaneously? And it all was predicated on the coming sacrifice of Christ. It is in Christ that justice and mercy kiss. And so in Christ, you have the sins of the forgiven covered, and yet the sins of the unforgiven left for them to pay the price for. And so the justice and mercy are kissing here. That is how God fulfills these in Christ. And this is why 
we are to glory in knowing this God. We understand him and we know him, but what is it that we understand and know? It's him, his character. And these are three evidences of his godly character, of his worthy character, worthy to be emulated, that he is merciful, he is righteous, and he exercises justice. Now, I want to close with just some thoughts about this text overall. What does man tend to glory and boast about? We covered that in verse 1. Wisdom, strength, wealth. Note that none of these involve our conduct. Wisdom, strength, wealth. It's not about what we do. It's about who we are or who we think we are. And all of them are centered on ourselves. Wisdom, strength, wealth, all centered on us, us, us. What is it that God is boasting about and that he asks us to glory over him about? Mercy, justice, and righteousness, all related to conduct and all related to others. God is not selfish in his character. His character, the character he most wants us to be proud of and to emulate is character that is based on action, righteous action in our world. Now, I want to do something unique for any young people that are awake. Uh, If you're 20 or less, I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand high. 20 or less. There you go. Now, parents, if you've got a little baby and they don't understand me, that's fine. You don't have to raise their hands. Okay, now, you've all raised your hands, okay? You know you've raised your hands. You can go ahead and lower your hands. You that raised your hands may think that worship services are really an adult thing. You may think that the pursuit of wisdom, strength, and wealth, the glorying in it, the boasting in it, Maybe something that really just pertains to adults, because personally, you don't find much value in wisdom, strength, and wealth. Okay, I'll accept that, but that's the character you're not supposed to emulate anyway. What is it that you are to emulate? Mercy, justice, and righteousness. And I don't care how little you are. You can practice those. So see, God has represented for us how he wants us to behave. And to the degree that we boast in him, that we understand and come to know him, is the degree that we will naturally emulate him. And what he wants from each of you, and I speak especially to the children that raise their hands, is he wants you to practice mercy that's with one another, that's with your parents, that's with the others that you interact with, that's everywhere. He wants you to practice justice. And I love that about my kids' Taekwondo. They are drilled in justice. You don't use these abilities to get what you want. You don't use them in an offensive way. You use them to defend yourself. You use them to defend others. That's it. You don't use them to show off. You don't use them to pick on people. And righteousness, you are fair. You don't cheat. You don't lie. You tell the truth. All of these things are components of righteousness. Now, that is whether you're a girl that's 6 or 7 or 16 or 17, a boy that's 6 or 5 or 8 or 12 or 20. This applies to you. You might come here week after week and just zone out. I'm up here a lot. I see a lot of people zoning out at times. But yet, you are here to become more like God from youth to old age. Now, every, some of you know that I'm a software manager at UP, and so I have a team that we develop software. And at the end of every sprint, which ends every month, I just did it actually this past Wednesday and Thursday, I ask my team three questions. This is probably the most difficult aspect of sprint planning uh, because it's really hard getting people to come out with these things. What went well this sprint? 
What went poorly this sprint? That one is easy. That one we get a lot of responses on. What went well, not so much. And third, what can we do better next time? How can we have the next sprint be an improvement over this sprint? Three very simple questions. But yet this type of reflection, this type of retrospection, is necessary to improve. So let me ask you three questions. Be honest. You don't have to answer to me. You answer to yourself and to God. How well do you understand and know? And you know what I mean by know now. It is to have an intimate relationship with God. How well do you understand and know God? Very much? Not so very much? Question two. Do you want to understand and know God better? Do you really? Don't just say yes. You have to look into your heart. Do you really want to know God better? Because if you really do, you'll answer this third question differently. What will you do differently tomorrow to understand and know God more than you did yesterday or last week? In other words, is anything that I said going to change the way you're living your life. Do you really want to understand God? Do you really want to know Him? Do you really want to not be frustrated by life? You must know God to get over any chronic frustrations in your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, Jeremiah that uh, he went through so much opposition, uh, so many personal attacks, uh, physical and uh, just vile. And so we thank you, Lord, that he endured that uh, on our behalf. Uh, He, in carrying out this, your character, in being merciful and pursuing justice and pursuing righteousness, uh, he is our example. And so, Father, you obviously are too. We thank you for the fact that Jesus walked this earth He lived the life that you had intended for all of us to live as humans. And yet, Lord, we thank you that he has fulfilled this for us. We pray, Lord, that we would come to love you more deeply, to know you and your word more intimately, and to not seek to be good based on outward conduct, but to be like you, and our conduct will improve because you are so good We thank you now, Father, for this word, and we pray that you would uh, apply it to our hearts and minds, apply it to our lives. May we learn from this, and may we do things differently in the week ahead. We ask you now to go before us and to prepare our hearts to serve you more completely and to know you more intimately. In Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen.